Welcome to the Law of Startups podcast. I'm Mike Schneider. And I'm Joe Wallen. Thank you for being with us. Today, we are lucky to have on our show Susan Siegel. She is a, a woman who's had a wonderful career in Seattle as well as other places, a past president of the WTIA, uh, a venture capitalist for a long time, uh, lots of fun stories to tell. Thank you for being on the show. My pleasure. Glad to be here. So tell me, so let me, let me get this straight. So you started your career working for, well, not started your career, but shortly into your career, you went to work for a, a Harvard dropout. Is that right? That's right. So I uh, left the MBA program after getting my uh, master's degree here at the University of Washington. And I had been originally from the South and decided I could not adjust to the weather. So I headed to the Southwest right out of business school went to work for PricewaterhouseCoopers for three years in Houston, Texas, and then was recruited away by a startup oil and gas company. So uh, very similar to the technology sector here, fast forward, you know, 20 years later or so, right. and the guy was, uh, he was about a year older than I was, so young teen, he was a Harvard dropout, uh, found school pretty boring, and he was all entrepreneurial. And so, you know, to condense it down into the short version. Uh, we started this oil and gas uh, drilling and exploration company and acquired a natural gas pipeline that ran through the southwest. Spent five years building up the company and we sold it to a pump public company, a public oil and gas company at the end of five years and everybody had a win and that was the introduction of entrepreneurship for me and it was uh, the rest is history as they say so I just had told um, Joe here that you know what happens to you that occurs for you early on a couple of things you you can't ever go back to real work and you believe that every startup you do after that is going to have the same outcome <laughs> that's a so, great story that's yeah a great story. It, it was fun it was really fun and so after that event uh, I relocated back to Seattle my husband was from Seattle uh, we you know started raising a family and kind of didn't wanna we wanted to be in this environment and so the reentry back to Seattle after eight years in Texas um, coincided with the very very beginnings of the technology sector here in Seattle it was 19, late 1984 1985 uh, about a year before Microsoft was going public and things were beginning to just start changing kind of at mock speed Right. So you recognized what was going on in Seattle to be comparable to what you didn't with your oil and gas startup. Yeah. No. I mean, the pattern recognition, you know, was pretty clear. Um, and I was very fortunate early on here to uh, meet uh, some of the very, very first angel investors in the technology sector. And they became more business associates and friends. And then I ended up doing a few special projects for people and so forth. I was much... Um, you know, focused on trying to create some balance in my life for my uh, family. <clears throat> so I did that for a number of years and then um, kept developing the network and understanding more and more about what was going on here, and <clears throat> excuse me, in the very early days. And then um, one of my uh, friends, Tom Hughesby, who I co-founded Seapoint Ventures with, right. um, we decided that what was missing, like this was 1997, was serious venture capital in the Northwest. So there were a few firms, but most of them were uh, investors, were individuals, angels. <clears throat> and we, I believe, brought the first institutional venture capital fund to the Northwest. So in 1997, we raised the first fund, and it was anchored by Oak Investment Partners and supported by Vinrock and um, 
um, seven rows and funds, and then those associations allowed us to go out and raise money from institutional investors. So we were off and running and, of course, went through the 99, 2001 wow. experience. But we basically started in 1997, and I, um, I left Seapoint in 2010 to become the head of the WTIA. Wow, mm -hmm. that's exciting. So, so the WTIA, like how, how, what, what transpired when you were there, and what do you think about how the technology industry association is doing now, and kind of how yeah. it morphed? I'd love to hear kind yeah. of your perspective on it. Well, I think it was interesting because, um, you know, to be really uh, transparent, I, I had been engaged as a, a volunteer and a participant in events with the WTIA early on, and that was, you know, at the beginning of my venture career, but really the WTIA at that time was really the only game in town. And so there was the MIT forum, but really getting people together for networking and events and all that stuff, it wasn't anything like it is now. Um, and so um, once it, the, you know, that kind of, if you will, sector became more inundated with opportunities to have other ways of meeting people and creating business opportunities and so forth, I think the organization lost a little bit of his steam, understandably so, and so um, there was a series of transitions. Anyway, I came in in 2010, and <clears throat> the whole focus for me was to try to regenerate the sense of community in the technology sector, and the institution had already been in existence for, I think, 25 years when I got there. So it was, you know, it was very um, embedded, and it was very staid, and so we did a lot of things to try to you know, rejuvenate that. I think the I think this association now is just doing a phenomenal job under Michael Schutzler. I think right. he has really attached himself to the industry um, as a representative for good legislation that you know helps our uh, economy and certainly our tech industry. And I have nothing but great things to say about the organization. It's an amazing vehicle and. Um, its continuing uh, ability to thrive is is really important for our region. Yeah, I remember it was called the Washington Software Association. That was the, yeah. Was that the original name of the thing? No, I actually think even prior to that, it had some other names. Right. Yeah. It didn't. It didn't morph to the WTIA until actually it was. Uh, Ken Meyer. It was I think under uh, Ken oh, Meyer's okay. reign that it it turned into the WTIA. And it's 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 basically a. A lot of the big industry, or maybe not so big, but it's, it's an industry association for companies. Essentially, companies all over the all over the region, all sizes too. So right. they do a really good job of offering uh, early stage companies, um, you know, breaks on things as as important as health insurance. Right. that's a big big deal. Right, um, and then of course it scales all the way up to the behemoth. So um, huge representation and participation, and that I think is important. It's important to have an association that does try to represent all sectors, which is not easy to do. It's right. very challenging. It's a disparate group. Yeah. So so what do you so you're working with you're working in some VR in, in, in a little bit in the virtual reality space right now? Yeah, yeah. So um so this phase of my um working life I have um hung out my shingle. Well it's not independent. I work through the um CFO selections organization because they are fantastic at uh, doing the business development and make, being a matchmaker for a person's experience and skill set for the right company. So right now I have two clients. One is a, uh, a new venture capital fund and the other one is somebody that I have um, 
well, I actually brought in a, as a client to CFO Selections. It is somebody that I have done a startup with in the past, John Sangiovanni. He was the uh, the founder, co-founder of Zoomobi. Ah. And so John has started his new gig, which is a company called Visual Vocal. It's in the VR space, and this particular uh, proposition is all about uh, solutions for the enterprise. And uh, it is not entertainment, it's not gaming, it's, it's strictly a... Uh, a communications platform using VR that allows companies to solve really expensive uh, hairy problems. So, you know, without getting into the whole pitch, um, and I think I recommend that you have John on the show. Yeah. Uh, but can we, can anyway, we do the show in VR? Yeah. Oh, whoa. Well, there you go. <laughs> That'd be um, if you have Google Cardboard, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So I'm working with them, and I'm absolutely loving it. Uh, John and I. Uh, worked together when I was at Seapoint Ventures, and I actually stepped in beginning at Zumobi and worked as their, we called it, you know, uh, venture executive, venture CFO or something, because okay, okay. I would do that periodically for yeah. our portfolio companies, yeah. and um, and just had a great experience, and he reconnected with me, uh, I guess it was last summer, and, the you know, we're working on developing visual vocal. That sounds fun. So, Mike, what, you've you've spent a lot of time in the in VR and around VR and working with with the tools. What what do you think, Mike, about when you think about the exciting thing about VR in Seattle? What what stands out to you? Um, well, I'd say more about uh, like um, it's interesting that that um, the company you're working with is is looking at um, is enterprise solutions, which I think is a good place to to focus. Yeah. Um, you know, the the things that are probably people are most excited about, like as the easy low hanging fruit, are all game. Yep game-related things, and, and Seattle's well-equipped to handle that because we've got so many great game companies, and uh, right. a lot of that is sort of just evolution of, of game developers. It's it's a lot of the same teams that have been building, you know, high-end, like, 3D games for consoles and, and computers are working on the, the VR stuff now, so it's kind of an extension of that, but the enterprise space, I think you have a potential to be, you know, a, a lot further ahead of the game because there's probably not going to be a lot of enterprise VR companies, you know, at and least right at the beginning. And this is also strictly, this is also strictly mobile, so mm -hmm. the, the technology team has got a huge uh, patent-rich background in all kinds of different um, UI design, and uh, John himself holds 20 patents in UI design. He was, he was involved at um, Microsoft for years in their research sector, a lot of it around VR and AR. Okay. And, um, but they do, they're, they're just heavy-duty mobile distributed uh, technologist and so that's... So you're not going to have to have a... Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, no, you, you are completely untethered. Your you're, you're totally, you're I've totally seen these untethered. Where, I've seen these photos where it looks like people have like a, like yeah. a whole bunch of cords like running right. off their head into a machine. That, I thought, well, yeah. gee, I don't, I don't know. So, if, you know, if you think of... Well, our first application is really interesting and I don't want to get into it too much. I yeah, don't want to sidetrack sure. us, but, yeah. um, you know, you think about industries that have to produce things that are incredibly complicated in terms of collaboration and costs. Think about architecture industry, uh, non-residential construction, aerospace, automotive. The I can't even describe the nightmare of what it takes to collaborate with teams, both people that are in industry and the people that are associated with the particular project that right. know nothing about the industry. They right. still have to give input. They have to participate. And this is a this is a mechanism 
by which the communications is, um, I have to be careful not to share the secret sauce right, here, but, right. it's, uh, but it's a very robust communications platform that takes a lot of the misery and expense out of collaborating on major distributed, very expensive projects. Well, that's a big that's a big deal because right now, I mean, you're right. Just even getting a something on the calendar with like three busy people is difficult. Oh. Well, you can imagine building a hundred million dollar plus or a billion dollar hospital complex or right. a stadium or right. your mind run wild. And these are global. Is is actually targeted, and these projects go on all over the world, and people that are working on them are located all over the world, and it is. Um, you know, I'm just kind of been engaging and indulging and in understanding the issues that the company's trying to solve, and they're just they're massive. So you went from being a, a startup uh, sort of co-founder or early early startup employee um, to having a nice you know exit and some money, and then you <laughs> and then you became you know after a couple of years of being in Seattle, you started a venture capital fund. How did being a venture capitalist sort of change your perspective to how you thought about startups. Did it change it or how did it change it? Yeah, well I mean of course in all of that, the course of all of this you understand too that you're maturing, right? Your experience right. is building and uh, like I said jokingly, I mean my first startup I, I kind of didn't get that they don't all go that way and right. so forth. So I think you know finally be beginning to get immersed in investments that my angel associates were making and then finally getting you know into the venture capital industry itself, um, you know, it always, it, the only magic is the caliber of the people and the quality of the product. I mean, everybody is looking for the same thing, whether you're in oil and gas or whether you're in technology, but it's really about the players. Uh, that's, you know, if I had to basically condense it all down, and I think we all know that. We say that over and over. You keep right. wanting to come up with some unique angle that right. is the not the top variable but honestly uh, because they're just as a you know as a venture capitalist what you get to see is that experience spread out over years and years and many many companies right. and so it's just a, a, a point of validation for the the observation the philosophy that really you you need you know, if you're if you're on the hunt for where to put your money, right, you need to be looking for the right folks. Right. Yeah. So how many? So when you was it primarily just you and Tom at the start? Well, in the course of the well, you know, we were technically well, we're still technically going. There's still two yeah. companies, and yeah. you know, you never kind of like get to the end. <laughs> but I think the most active part um, pretty much coincided with when um, you know we were. I I was leaving in 2010, but. Um, during the course of all those many years, we did have uh, Melissa Widner was a partner. Okay, yeah, she I now Melissa, lives yeah. in Australia and yeah. is in venture there. Okay. Um, and yeah, so it was. It, it's like most venture capital firms. You know, you stay pretty small and you yeah. try to manage more and more money. Exactly. Uh, the, the firms are not huge firms. No, no, they're not. Um, so except maybe Andreessen Horowitz or something. I mean, yeah, <laughs> right, right. When you're on fund number twenty six, you know you, <laughs> right. you need more people. <laughs> right, right. So, so how was how was it going? I mean, Mike and I were both practicing. I think Mike, we were, weren't we both practicing law when that bubble burst in two thousand? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. yeah, that was right. I, I came out of law school just before the bubble. Uh, oh. It was it was kind of a uh, it was a, an interesting time to enter the law. 
especially yeah, in our space. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, so I, I was like a few years ahead of Mike. We were at the same law firm and then we experienced that together. What was that like to experience as a, as a venture capitalist? Oh my God. Was it you know, brutal? Oh yeah. I mean, the scar tissue is terrible. Is it still That's, there? Is the scar tissue still oh, around? Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, I think it's really, uh, really applicable to this whole quandary right now, this current about, are we, are we in a, a, a readjust? Are we, you know, what's happened? You know, the fourth quarter of 2015 obviously was not like the other quarters of 2015. But, right. you know, just this morning, I, um, I read an article that said that, Jan I mean, it analyzed January and February's current vis venture investments. And um, actually, it's, it's good. And right. So, you know, it's, it's not up dramatically, but it's holding its own. It's, it's up bad. about 1%. Things and it depends, it depends on what, sec you know, whether you're in the A range, B range, or right. so forth. So, to the, you know, to the point about the scar tissue, I think for people that have experienced that and been around that long, it's like you're always kind of looking over your shoulder at things being overheated because you've right. been there and you get that, hey, this stuff comes to a halt if you're not really paying attention right. and adjusting things real time. Because I think in 99, as you guys know, um, in 2000, 2001, we all kept saying, okay, well, you know, it's bad, but it's just really a, a necessary adjustment. It's not the bottom falling out, which right. it was absolutely the bottom falling out. Right. You don't know until you've hit the bottom right. that that's what happened to you. Yeah, So exactly. you kind of never really get over it because it was just, um, it was rabid enthusiasm. And then you were, you were, you were still, you were still being, you were still VC during the 2008 meltdown as well. well yeah, of course. <laughs> so right? about, so my it wasn't supposed to happen that fast, <laughs> right? But you know, I have to say, one of the most interesting experiences was uh, I actually raised a fund during two thousand and one, okay. and that was that was probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my entire life. And just to get people to commit to funds in a sector that looked pretty bad at that in, moment in mobile in Seattle. Right. Yeah, this was, was it? Was this, that was probably a great cycle and great time to invest, though. It was a super time to right. invest, um, but you know, you'd be telling the story on the phone, and you you know hear the click. Really? <laughs> wow. You know, it was like nobody wanted to be investing in venture. Period. Um, but you know, it was funny because we we were embarrassed that we did not hit our target. We so we didn't we didn't do any prep nothing. I mean we closed the fund, it was right. fine and we had like seventy five percent of our institutions follow us. Yep. But um it was kind of uh serendipitous. We were on a plane sitting next to somebody and they started asking us what we did and so forth and so on and you know they said, well, how are you doing now? And we said, well, you know, we just closed a fund, but we didn't hit the target. And they, it, this guy was somehow or other affiliated with Venture, and he goes, you did what? Right. You, you closed <laughs> the fund? You closed the fund? Well, we closed this fund, but, you know, it's not a big deal because we right. didn't make the mark. And, and he's like, okay, you know that you're probably only one of, and he named some really low yeah. number. And yeah. so, you know, it was kind of like, oh. Well, any, I think any time you're trying to raise a venture fund, it is a hard thing to do. Oh, my god! No matter what. Yeah. I and, mean, and the other thing is about VCs that I think most people don't know, but entrepreneurs will love hearing this. Um, they're horrible fundraisers. Are they? Oh, my God. <laughs> but they're terrible. so good at telling everyone else how to well, do it. <laughs> well, that's what I mean. It's because they, you know, they, uh, and forgive me, any of the VCs that are listening to this, but I think you probably will admit that it's not that far from the truth. You right. listen to so many pitches, you think that it just, 
naturally makes you an expert on oh how my. to pitch. It's so easy to judge someone else's pitch, but to go do it yourself. Go right. do it yourself. It's right. so hard. It's right. so hard. It, it was. It's kind of funny, and I think all entrepreneurs, a couple of pieces of advice. If your venture capitalist says we're fundraising right now, you might want to think about that because what it means is that you're not going to get much love, right? Because right. right. it is an all-consuming job just like it is for the entrepreneur. And you ought to take some satisfaction that they suffer through the same exact experience of right. trying to raise a fund that an entrepreneur does is trying to raise around. So if you were, if you're, I'm sure you've coached a lot of startups on how to raise money over the years. Mm -hmm. Like, what's your primary piece of advice, or what's the most important thing you would tell a startup founder who wants to raise some money to to build the business? What would you tell them? Well, I mean, I think if you assume that you know the product is good and there's you know the the, the obvious that there, it's a great size market and lots of opportunity right. and all that. I think what I see over and over again is um, just you you have to come in super animated, super confident. You have to not be defensive. You have to be a good listener, but you also have to be just absolutely passionate about the proposition you're putting on the table. And I mean, that sounds like a cliche. But you see it go sideways many, many times, you know, when you're in it. And it's because the, pr the pressure right. is very intense. I mean, right. you're going to put your baby right on the table and some people are going to stab at it, right? right. And right. It's, it's hard. But I would say that, um, and this sounds like corny advice too, but it's like the more you practice, the better you're going to be. Right. So don't ever go in thinking you're going to wing it with this group, and right. it's just it's not going to work. It's going to backfire right. on you. Yeah, yeah, it struck me, and Mike and I have talked about this on the show before. It, it strikes me that one place where VR could be really awesome is is simulating, like you know, go, if you can use VR to simulate a job interview or a uh -huh. pit or a pitch to a, right. to a venture capital fund or a sales call, or I mean, there's a zillion different ways you could use right. VR to simulate you know real life situations and get better than in real life. Yeah. Um, doing those things. Yeah, well I, you know, obviously I, um, you know, when you really think about the whole let your mind run wild about the VR, AR space, yeah. it's just crazy. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that, and John is a very, um, he's almost a, a futuristic kind of technologist with a brilliant mind around uh, how you combine um, a user experience with technology. but you know he talks about the future in terms of we will we will never use one of these laptop devices again everything oh, yeah. will be on you physically mm. teeny tiny nano right technology that you're interacting with constantly right. and um, you know you can see it you can totally see it we're right. just at the very beginning very beginning of VR AR right what do you think about the difference in terms of what you guys are working on um, you know between AR and VR and which one you think will kind of dominate uh, and maybe in what space. A lot of people think well, you know, AR might be more of the enterprise type solution and uh -huh. VR because, because you can you can sort of use it and still be engaged in the world. Um, yeah, I think, you know, that's um, that could be a religious type question, but, right. um, but I will <laughs> say that, um, uh, you know, what from what I understand, and I certainly would not hold myself out as the expert in the in the sector, but we all know that AR is coming and it's going to be, it's, it's coming, you know, it'll eventually be untethered and all of that good stuff. Um, but the estimates are that it's, it's 10 years out. 
I mean, huh. it's it's and and it's it's such complicated technology. Okay. You know, because you are literally taking an object and you're you're putting it in a in a virtual in in a, well a, or in a real environment, right? right? Right. And it's just a whole different level of playing field. I, I mean, you look at like Hololens and stuff, and I mean, they've got an army of people working on right. their product, and um, it's it's just a whole different ball game. And so, you know. I think for for VR in terms of enterprise solutions, there it's this is not trying to create deep seated magic. This is trying to take a like a problem a, like a collaboration and communication prob right, problem, right? And and use a technology that is you know much farther along and m much easier for anybody to apply right so um it will it'll be interesting I, I, to see how because it sounds like you know i don't know all the details about what you're working on but it sounds like there's a bit of sort of almost like a teleconferencing kind of thing but but in vr so you can communicate with other people i'm, I'm not sure if that's an accurate it, description it's definitely communications based and um um you know what so the platform that that's being built um, is definitely going to be capable of morphing into the AR environment as well. It is, you know, it is, it is, this is, so we are in a relationship right now, a partnership actually, uh, an incredible partnership with um, uh, one of the largest global architectural firms in the world, um, NBBJ, who is located, its corporate headquarters are here. And they are, um, you know, that's the entry point for developing the platform, which they are, they have got, you know, eight assigned named digital global leaders in their shop assigned to working on the beta with us for this. Wow. And that will be the starting point for the platform. And right. from there we will take it, you know, we will just continue to develop it. And I've uh, got the great team to do it, but um, did, did I just answer your question, Mike, or am I just like, no, no, I sound like just well, rambling? <laughs> no, no, that was great. I mean, it, it definitely uh, is interesting to kind of hear where you're going. I mean, it's, um, it was, I think what I was thinking about was kind of uh, the, the parallel between sort of meeting with people in VR space and, uh, and video conferencing and how, it kind of interesting how long it took for video conferencing to actually take off as something people use like on a regular basis, like the technology has been there for a long time to do, you know, video conferencing and, and, and even using like webcams probably, I don't know, maybe 15, maybe even 20 years, maybe 15 years. I, I don't know. I, I can remember doing, you know, web webcam calls with people quite a ways back, but it, but it was always something people like people didn't jump on it as quickly as you'd imagine, like the Jetsons. You, you, yeah. you kind of assume that when the future gets here, everybody will jump on board. I'm, cu I'm curious to know how how long. That's why I'm thinking when you say like a yeah. ten year ten year um, timeline for things like AR. I think that may be realistic, not, not necessarily just in terms of the technology, but more about you know just getting enough people to adopt and use it and be comfortable well, with it. I think that's that prevalent. a really really good point because in my experience, and I'm certainly no psychologist, but I I definitely recognize over a long career that there is such a gigantic lag between being able to do something and then having people do it do it um, right. and so I think um, you know that's why I think that VR itself is now just crossing that threshold with you know for example Google Cardboard and all of the 
uh, similar kind of devices that are, are, you know, viewing devices that are now, I mean, you can buy one for $5, I know, right? Cardboard's amazing, right? It is amazing. It's amazing. Um, and so that, that application is going to become, um, I think, you know, table stakes. I mean, I, th I think that's, that's really what's going to happen there because I think we're all now just kind of discovering the VR space and probably what can be done there. And it's, it's, it's moving outside of the context of gaming and, and entertainment and so forth, and that's that's a good thing, um, but but definitely there there's a lag there's a lag time there. And you know, one of the things I'll point out in regard to that is that um, this particular product communications VR platform that's being developed by Visual Vocal uh, is no in no way meant to completely replace all you know collaboration meetings. But you know, if you just think about having a hundred or a thousand collaborators on a on a billion dollar project, um, you know something's got to give, and so that's you know what what the architects say to us is just solve that you know solve a part of that problem. Right. right. So um, and even if you solve a part of that problem, you've saved companies literally tens of millions of dollars right. in travel, in right. you know all of the things that go with you know uh, trying to get people to to be able to understand what it is they're making a decision upon. Huh. That's interesting. So Mike, you're going to you're going to develop some some VR apps for your for your apps? Uh, we'll see. I, I've played around with it a bit. Um, I, I, we're kind of taking it in a different direction like that the priority at the moment is is uh, transitioning to like a more of a subscription model with a with a web. Uh, so it's almost like a move away from mobile which is which is weird for me like uh so i, I all my apps and and the company that i started are all, all very mobile centric um you know all the success we've had have, has been because of the the app store but um but the app store model is becoming a little bit um uh, i don't know it, it's an overcrowded market and um and so it still kind of works but it, it seems like it's interesting to, that the future to me seems like it's more about um you know, trying to transitioning back to the web and still still having mobile be a, a large piece of it, but but have it have the platform be a little bit broader. So I, I've I've played with the VR stuff, but right now my focus is on kind of um, transitioning things over to more of a web subscription platform. And then at some point, mostly just keeping my eye on VR as something to know like when is the right time to to do something there. Um, right now, it seems too early uh, in a sense that there just aren't a lot of devices in hands and um, and. Uh, yeah, the upside is is if you do something on VR now, the, the bar is probably going to be as low as it's ever going to be um, in terms of being able to put something out that that um, that can compete. Um, it'll probably just get tougher and tougher. Um, but but at the same time, there's there's not a, not as many devices out there. So until the the Vive or the Oculus ships and and we start to see like a massive adoption, um, like we did with the iPhone when it first came out, probably probably won't won't actually build and ship anything on it until then. But it's still fun to see what's possible. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to. You know, you know this. I'd love to play with the technology. When <laughs> oh yeah, well we have a. You know, we have our. The demo con continues to uh, evolve. It's very interesting, and um, yeah, you guys ought to come by. We 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 camp out with NBBJ. Yeah. And um, you know, come by sometime. I think it would be really fun for you to talk to John and. Get a little demo and oh, that, yeah. see what we're doing. Yeah, um, yeah. So, 
the other side of VR is just the investment appetite right now. Right. So I think, you know, PitchBook right. issued that big report at the end of last year and I think it's, you know, there was like $4 billion invested in VR AR huh. in 2015 wow. and, and they, yeah, it's very impressive, huh. uh, kind of surprising. And then, um, See, I've you know, a ton of, there's been a ton of companies that were yeah. in the VR space in Seattle. Yeah. But I wonder of that $4 billion, like what, what, what portion of that, does, it, does Seattle represent that? I, I don't know. Uh, and that was probably worldwide too. Okay. I don't know either. Um, but um, but you know I think that the you know maybe I have that wrong. Maybe that was their projection for this year. Right. So I might yeah I hold that with a grain okay. of salt. I may be misquoting. It might have been the projection for this year. But I think the point that I'm trying to make, nevertheless, is that um, it is considered in the investment community that this is really really a huge area now yeah. for investment um, placement and we're seeing that as a you know we're, we're seeing that from the from the um, investment side as well huh people banging on your door well I won't go that <laughs> yeah you know that's that's in your dreams but um, you still have to go out and do the work but I think the receptivity is good yeah yeah for sure for sure interesting well so uh, I mean as, as we sort of wind this up like what 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 do you have any like parting thoughts suggestions maybe for the Seattle startup community as a whole maybe some I mean what what should the tech leaders in Seattle right now be focused on what, what is there a, is there a public policy prescription you would toss out for us or um, uh, was that wow uh, I would just you know it, it's it's kind of like a you you want to have that you know magic statement that you can make to entrepreneurs but I would just say that it's it's what you know it's already kind of what you know and that is you know you just you have to be brutally self-aware and honest about what you're building and its opportunity and you have to get lots of input lots of advice and of course you know the more experience the advice the better uh, you have to have those leadership qualities that include uh, some humility and being willing to listen and to take the advice right. um, and you know that just is it, again it sounds like a cliche but it's actually the truth because when you're looking for money that's what people that invest uh, are looking where they're looking to put their money so you know we have a very um, rich angel community here right. in Seattle I mean right. we've probably got more um, well-funded executive director run angel groups than probably a lot of arenas and they're great and I think that taking trying to take advantage of that and just you know if you can clear the bar for some of their uh, qualifications to get in front of their groups that's that's a really another good way to go because even if you don't clear the bar you're gonna get great feedback right, right. Um, and so just as you know I mean I think everybody out there knows this you've just got to keep working that resource base as hard as you can and be very very distinctive and selective because you can waste a lot of time and spin a lot of wheels right. just chasing things that or individuals that really aren't aren't going to move you along I gotcha yeah well, thanks so much for being on yeah, the show. Thank I you, Susan, it. very much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thanks for uh, for coming on. It was great chatting with you. And, uh, and thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you all next week.